This morning's scripture reading is from the third chapter of the book of Genesis. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the tree, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. I've lost my spot. Okay. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent tricked me, and I ate. Now you know what it sounded like. Five days from today, Christians around the world will be celebrating the death of Christ on a day known as Good Friday. And the question is, why is it called Good Friday? Well, what's good about it? Why is this man's death worth celebrating? To me, one of the most piercing criticisms of Christianity has always been, look, what is, what is with this odd fixation you all have on this gruesome execution that took place 2,000 years ago? You know, if you, if you grew up Catholic, you're used to, to seeing him up there, hanging there every week, or maybe you even had a, a crucifix in your home. And, and it raises this question of why. You know, if, if you were born into it, it, it seems sort of normal. But if you look at it from an outside perspective, and you, it, all of a sudden you realize it's, it's actually quite strange, quite odd to be fixated on this man's death. It's sort of... Uh, psychologically unhealthy, it's sort of morbid, it just doesn't really add up. Which is why that it's not just critics from outside of Christianity that have, have been bothered by this, even from within Christianity. Over the course of the last 2,000 years, there have been repeatedly these campaigns to try to shift the focus. You know, let's modernize things. We don't have to focus on this part of the story. Let's, let's talk about something that uh, everybody can agree upon, something that's a little bit more positive, more uplifting, you know, love your neighbor as you love yourself, something like that. 
Let's sanitize things. We don't have to talk about all this blood and guts. And yet, over the last 2,000 years, every single one of those campaigns to sanitize the Christian faith has failed, and the death of Christ has remained stubbornly at the same spot it's always been since day one of the Christian faith, which is dead center, right right at the middle, center stage of Christianity. So what I want to ask this morning is why? Why is that? Why is the death of Christ so important? Now, that's a question that's far too big for any one sermon, because this is the most written about topic that there is. Now, I don't, I don't just mean it's the most written about topic within Christianity. I mean this is the most written about, the most discussed event in human history, period, of any kind, by a huge margin. Nothing has been more analyzed than the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So it's not something that we're going to wrap our minds around this morning in, in 30 minutes. What I want to do today, instead of trying to be comprehensive, is to just focus in and talk about one reason. One reason Christ had to die. One reason the death of Christ is so important, which is this. It proves, beyond any doubt, the goodness of God. That's going to be the, the sermon for this morning. That's the sermon in a sentence, the thesis statement. We're going to spend our whole time unpacking that one idea, so I want to say it again. One of the reasons, one of the most important reasons for the death of Christ is that it proves, beyond any doubt, the goodness of God. So to unpack that idea, I want to ask two questions, and these two questions will, will answering these two questions will form the, the two sections of this morning's sermon. First, why did we ever doubt God's goodness to begin with? And second, how does the death of Christ prove it to us again? So first, why did we ever doubt God's goodness to begin with? Second, how does the death of Christ prove God's goodness again? We'll take those one at a time. So first, why did we ever doubt God's goodness to begin with? You see the answer in the scripture reading that we looked at this morning, Genesis chapter 3. And out of all the passages I've preached on over the last seven years, I've preached on this one more than any other by a long shot because it tells us more than any other passage in the Bible about how we got into the mess that we're in. So the short answer to this first question, why did we ever start to doubt the goodness of God? According to Genesis 3, the short answer to that is because we believed the lie of the serpent. But what was the lie of the serpent? If you look in the passage, one of the things that's interesting, I don't know if you noticed this when it was just read, is that the serpent only has two lines. He only speaks twice in this conversation he has with Eve. But in those two lines is contained an entire worldview that we imbibe. So the first thing he says, he opens with not a, a statement, but a question. He opens with this question to Eve of Eve. Did God really say that you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden? You know, he planted this beautiful garden, all of these different trees, with all these different types of fruit. And is that true? Did I hear right? Did he really tell you that you can't eat from any of them? Now, Satan knows for a fact that that's not what God said. So why is he asking the question? Because he's brilliant. The, the subtlety, the deftness of his approach here is almost impossible to overstate. He's asking this question to create a mood. 
It's trying to create a mood of suspicion around the character of God. And it doesn't matter that the question has no basis in reality. It doesn't matter that the question is not based on facts. Because moods are more powerful than facts. If you want to get somebody to believe a lie, don't start with statements. Don't start with assertions. You start with suggestions, with questions. He's not, he's not trying to get information. He's using words to change the lighting and to, to set a particular mood of suspicion. It would be like if I came up to you and I said, did your spouse really cheat on you last week? Even if there's no basis in fact for that question at all, if it's just completely out of the blue, even if you know with 100% certainty that that's not true, I can guarantee you one thing, which is that you're going to think about that question later. It's going to lodge in your brain. And the other thing is, whatever you say after that is going to be colored by the mood that's been created, the lighting that's been set. So if you, because you know, you rack your brain, you think, where could he possibly be coming from? You know, why would he ask that question? And you say, oh, oh, well, you know, they they were out with that person last week, but there's a, a perfectly legitimate explanation for it. It's perfectly innocent. It may be perfectly innocent. It doesn't sound perfectly innocent anymore, because now I've set the tone, and now it sounds like you're excusing or you're apologizing or you're defending. It's the same thing with Eve. Once the tone has been set and the mood has been created, you know, she, she thinks, well, what, what is he talking about? What, he, what could he be referring to? And she says, oh, well, there was, the, no, I mean, we we're allowed to eat from any tree. There was that one thing about how he said he didn't want us to eat from that one tree, which in a neutral lighting, in a in normal context, is perfectly fine. It doesn't make God look bad. But in the mood that Satan's created, it does make God look bad. Because the subtext of his question is, Eve, I think God is holding out on you. And then he gets Eve to bring up, in response to that question, the one way that God has, in fact, held out on her, which now looks like Exhibit A. See, he's already got her halfway down the path that he wants her to be on, and he hasn't even said anything yet. And he finishes her off with his second line. Opens with the question, and then there's a second line, he, he does make assertions, but the, the interesting thing to note about all the assertions he makes is that while all of them are false in a deeper sense, they are all technically true. So now we have two principles of lying. We're getting a master class on deception from the father of lies himself. First, start with questions, start with suggestions, not statements. And then second, when you do make statements... Make sure that they're technically true, or make sure that they're true in a certain sense. So Eve says, no, 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 it's not that we can't eat from any tree in the garden. It's that he he said we can't eat from that one tree, and he told us why. He said, if we eat from that one tree, we'll die. And the serpent says, you won't die. Now, the sense in which that's technically true is that they don't immediately physically drop dead upon eating the fruit. So it's not like uh, Snow White's poison apple. They don't, they don't keel over. The sense in which it's false is that they, they do experience two types of death as a result of eating the fruit on, fruit on two different time horizons. So first, they, they do immediately spiritually die. They, they, their soul withers, their heart closes up. And then secondly, not only do they die spiritually immediately, but then they also die physically eventually. 
So God intended for human beings to live forever, and although they don't keel over when they eat the fruit, they do start dying as soon as they take a bite. The, the clock starts ticking. So two types of death that do come, this spiritual death that comes immediately, this physical death that comes eventually. That's the first thing he said, total lie, you won't die. And then he continues on from there. And what he says is, you won't die. In fact, what will actually happen, God knows that when you eat of this fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will become like him, knowing good and evil. Now again here, all of that is technically true. So God does know it, he knows everything, and they will have their eyes open. That's what you see in the passage. Their eyes are opened when they eat of the fruit. There is a new awareness. There is a new consciousness that comes in. And in that one regard, they actually are more like God than they were before. And this knowledge of evil that they have now that they, that they didn't have before, they actually are more like God. So there's no lie in the text of those statements. Where the lie is, is in the subtext. Because what he's implying, and he never comes out and says this, but what he's implying about each of those things he takes off, your eyes will be open, you'll be more like God, knowing good and evil, he's implying that those are all good things. Now, he, he never comes out and says it. He never says it's a good thing for you to know good and evil. It's a good thing for your eyes to be open. It's a good thing for you to be more like God. But he implies that they're good things. Which means he further implies when he says, God knows that you would get all of these good things if you ate of the fruit. What he further implies is that God is intentionally holding out on them. He's got all this good stuff, and he doesn't want you to have it. The, Satan, the serpent says, Satan says, he's, I don't know why. I don't know why he doesn't want you to have it. Maybe you know, it's because he's big and you're little. Maybe it's because he likes just arbitrarily pushing you around. Maybe it's because he likes the, the power trip. I don't know why. All I know is that if he's got all this good stuff that he's not sharing with you, that means he's not a good God. The servant says, look, he, he, think about it. He, take, he, he creates this beautiful tree. He takes you to the tree. He shows it to you. And he says, look at, look at this beautiful tree. Now don't touch it. Don't eat it. The servant says, it's kind of messed up. It's like, as an example, think about a, a father and a son. And the father says to the son, uh, I, I've got this son, I've got this day planned for us. I want, to, I want to take you out. I want to take you to this toy store. So the son says, okay, great. And so they go, they get on the train, they go to the toy store. Imagine you know, a, a giant toy store like FAO Schwartz before it closed. And the, the son's really excited. And the father is really excited. The father's acting really excited and he's taking the son all around the store and he's pointing stuff out. He says, look, look at that, wouldn't you love that? Son's like, yeah. And look at that over there. Wouldn't you love to have that? Yeah. And they do, they do this for about an hour. And then he takes the son outside the store after this. And, and he sits him down. And he says, now, son, I want you to listen to me. I want you to listen to me very carefully. Everything I just showed you, I'm never going to let you have any of that. I'm never going to give you any of those things. None of that is for you. And I just wanted you to know that. So now let's go home. You know, in our response to that is, well, what, what kind of sicko would, would do that? You know, what, what, to just mess with a kid. 
And the lie of the serpent is, that's what God is like. God is like that dad. This God that creates good stuff and then doesn't share it with you, doesn't let you have it, just to mess with you, just to screw with you. This God that that puts these rules on things and says, no, not this, no, not that, just because. And what Satan is asking Eve and what Satan is asking us, what the serpent is asking us is, are you really going to just sit there and take this? Are you, you're just going to let God arbitrarily put a ceiling on your happiness and your satisfaction? Or are you going to grow up and take matters into your own hands? You know, instead of you know, walking around like this pathetic little seven-year-old asking permission for everything, Dad, please, Dad, please, no, just grow up. Get your own money. Buy your own stuff. Make your own rules. You don't have to wait on God for everything or let him tell you what you can and cannot have. And that attitude toward life that the serpent is recommending, that attitude is called sin. What is sin? It's not breaking the rules. Oh, you sin, tisk tisk. No, sin is an attitude. It's an orientation. It's a worldview. And it's a worldview that says... I'm not just going to sit back waiting for a handout from God. I'm going to take responsibility for my own life. I'm going to make my own decisions, and I'm going to go after what I want in life. Now, expressed like that, it doesn't sound so bad. You know, it sounds almost noble, like uh, like independence and responsibility. But the other way you can you can put that same attitude is. You can phrase it as, I'm not going to just sit back and wait for a handout from God. I'm going to get what's mine, and I'm going to look out for number one. And phrased like that, you know, then you start to see, well, wait a minute, this is the attitude that is at the heart of all of our problems as a society, as families, as individuals. Why? Because the attitude of sin is premised upon the assumption that God cannot be trusted, that he doesn't have my best interest at heart, so I have to look out for my own best interest. But if God can't be trusted, then other people certainly can. If you have to be suspicious and cynical toward God, then you, you absolutely have to be suspicious and cynical toward other people, which is why that this attitude of sin always devolves into selfishness, blame, self-protection, throwing others under the bus, hiding, keeping others away. And and ultimately what it results in is your heart being closed off to and unable to receive love. That's what you see with Adam and Eve in the garden. What's the first thing that happens after they eat of the fruit is they hide from one another all of a sudden they feel really self-conscious about being naked. They were naked before, they felt fine. But now all of a sudden it bothers them. Why? Because if you're suspicious and cynical toward God, you have to be suspicious and cynical toward others. And so now all of a sudden I can't trust you with all of me because I don't know if you have my best interests at heart. I don't know if you're going to be good to me. If I don't even know if God's going to be good to me, how do I know whether you're going to be good to me? So I have to cover up. I have to hide. I have to protect. I have to look out for myself. And what Genesis 3 shows us, we've got a piece of literature that is thousands and thousands of years old, and this truth that is 
so profound, you know, we could never plumb the depths of it. What it shows us is that autonomy and loneliness always go together. You cannot have one without the other. And Satan knows that, but they didn't. So he dangles autonomy in front of them. Look, do it, do it on your own. You, you can do this by yourself. And they didn't realize that they were bargaining for loneliness at the same time. You get loneliness thrown in for free. So that's the first half of the sermon, or a little more than half, actually. First section, part one of the sermon, which is the answer to this question, why did we ever start to doubt God's goodness to begin with? And the answer is because we believed the lie of the serpent. The lie that God was withholding good things from us. The lie that God didn't have our best interests at heart. And we struck out on our own. So now, uh, with the time we have left, let's move on to the second question, part two of the sermon, which is trying to answer this question. Okay, so how is it that the death of Christ proves God's goodness to us again? That's how we started to doubt it. How is it that the death of Christ proves God's goodness to us again? And to head toward an answer to that question, we have to go back to uh, what God said in the garden, the original rule and his rationale for that rule, which was, you can't eat of this tree, don't eat of this tree. If you do eat of this tree, you will die. Which, of course, is what happens. It's exactly what happens. Adam and Eve do die spiritually, immediately, like we, like we talked about, and they obviously die physically. And it's not just them. When God says, you will die if you eat of this tree, of this fruit, he, he's also saying not just you, but your children, and your children's children, and your children's children, children. And of course, the same thing is true of us. We obviously all die physically, but more important than the fact that we all die physically, in, in some ways, is the spiritual death, the spiritual emptiness that we all live with. And you, know, you, you, you do your best to block that out. You can drown it out a lot of the time, but there are these quiet moments where it's completely unavoidable, and undeniable. We inherited that death, both of those two types of death. That's the situation we find ourselves in post-eating the fruit. Now, why is that? Why does, why does eating the fruit bring these two types of death? It's, it's actually for a pretty logical, straightforward reason. It's not like the fruit is you know magic and makes you die. The reason the eating the fruit brings these two types of death, and they have the same source, the physical death and the spiritual death, that they might at first seem unrelated. They have the same source, which is that you, you die physically and you die spiritually when you're separated from God, which is what Satan's goal was. The servant's goal is to drive a wedge between us and God, and he accomplishes that. And once that wedge is in place, once we're separated from God, well, eternal life comes from God. Spiritual life comes from God. So it's like we're unplugged from the power source. So this is the new state of affairs. This is the new status quo. And what God could have done, what he arguably should have done, if the universe was a fair place, what God should have done is he said, well, you got yourself into this mess by doing the exact opposite of what I told you to do. So, you know, this is how it's going to be, and just left us with it, left us to find our own way out. But he doesn't do that, because he knew that we wouldn't be able to find our own way out. He knew that we were perfectly capable of getting ourselves into this mess, but we were not capable of getting ourselves out of it. 
And so what he does instead is he comes down and lives among us as a human being, as Jesus Christ. Not primarily to teach us, although he does do that. Not primarily to heal us, although he does do that. Not primarily just to share our burdens and share our human experience, although he does do that. But primarily, first and foremost, the reason Jesus comes is to absorb these two types of death that we had inherited for ourselves. These two types of death that we had landed ourselves with. And the only way for him to do that, the only way for him to lift this burden off of us is to take this burden upon himself and to to receive both of those two types of death, a spiritual death and a physical death, infinite suffering on the cross. And when he becomes body and blood and when his body and blood are broken and shed for us, then the, the curse of sin is lifted and the spell is broken. Now, uh, we could do a whole series of sermons just on those last 30 seconds. So maybe that makes sense to you, and maybe it doesn't. And if it doesn't make sense to you, I, I'm not going to be able to get into the mechanics of it this morning about how it works and, and convince you of it. But what I want to ask you to do is just for the sake of argument, just so we can continue, assume with me for a moment that that's true. Assume with me for a moment that we got these two types of death for ourselves, physical and spiritual, and that the only way for God to free us from those two types of death was for him to come as Jesus and take those two types of death upon himself on the cross. If that's true, then what it proves is that the the serpent was lying. What it proves with dramatic force is that the character of God is the exact opposite of the way that the serpent was portraying the character of God. Because the serpent's, the serpent's whole idea was, God is holding out on you. There's this good stuff that he doesn't want you to have. And then on the cross, you see him doing anything but withholding. You see him not holding back. You see him giving everything, even the costliest of things, in order to get us back. There's this verse in Romans 8 that that argues with us based on this logic. It says, look, he who did not withhold even his own son, how will he not also give us everything else? If he didn't hold back his own son, if he didn't hold back his own life, if he was willing to make that sacrifice, then this idea that he would withhold any good thing from us is absurd, which is exactly what Psalm says. It says he withholds no good thing from us exact opposite of the way the serpent portrays him. You know, go back to the story of the uh, the boy and the father. You remember how the, the serpent told it about how the father is. I want to close this morning by going back to that story and retelling it, but now retelling it the right, the right way, that we're telling it how it really happens. So uh, you have to change the details a little bit. Let's say instead of a father and a little boy, let's say it's a father and a 13-year-old son, because that's what we're like. We're like 13-year-olds. And so the, the father says to his son, you know, I've got this day planned for us. I've got this whole uh, morning planned for us. I want to take you to some places. So the son says, okay. So first they, you know, they don't just go to the toy store. First they go to uh, like an electronics store, Best Buy. And he shows them all these gadgets. He says, look at all this stuff. Isn't this cool? son says, yeah. And so then they go to, you know, a, a sporting goods store. And he shows them all this cool gear. 
And he says, look at all this stuff. Isn't this cool? Wouldn't you like to have this stuff? And the son says, yeah. And then they go, the last thing they do before lunch is they go to a, a car dealer. And the dad says, there's this car I want to show you. So he takes the, the son and shows him this car. He says, look, look at this car. Isn't this car amazing? The son says, yeah. And so then they go out to lunch. They go out for burgers and, and milkshakes. And the dad says, all right, son, listen to me. Everything I just showed you, I'm going to give you someday. But not yet. I'm not going to give it to you yet. It's going to ca- happen when the time is right. I'm going to give it to you when, when, it's, when you're ready for it. So uh, I just want you to know that, and I want you to trust my wisdom. And so the son says, okay, got it. So the next day at school, the son is, is uh, bragging to a friend about how great his dad is. You know, he's telling him the whole story about the whole morning, and isn't my dad so cool? And the friend just laughs. The friend scoffs, sneers. He says, I, I can't believe it. You're a lot dumber than I thought you were. And the son's like, what are you talking about? And the friend says, your dad's not going to give you any of that stuff. He's just lying. He's just trying to appease you. You know, I've learned the hard way. If you want to get anything good, you have to go get it yourself. Your dad completely fooled you. And so the the son thinks about it. You know, he mulls it over. He mulls it over for a couple of days. He mulls it over for a couple of weeks, actually. And he, he plans it out, and finally he, he makes his decision, and he chooses this day to cut class. And he goes to the uh, electronics store, and he, he steals a bunch of the things that his dad showed him. And he goes to the sporting goods store, and he steals a bunch of stuff that his dad showed him. And then he goes to the car lot, and he figures out a way to steal the car. He drives the car off the lot. He gets a couple miles down the road, and he crashes the car, totals it. And so, you know, the everybody presses charges. The stores press charges. The car lot presses charges. The DA decides to prosecute him. He's going to play hardball. And the dad uh, pays for all of it. You know, he pays for the car. He pays for all the stuff his son stole. He pays for all of the legal fees. And it takes a couple of months. But finally, all the charges have been dropped and everything's been paid for. And so they're driving home from the, uh, from the courthouse on the, the day when it's all finally been cleared. And the son says to his dad, Dad, how did you afford to, to pay for all that stuff? And the dad says, well, you know how uh, your, your grandfather was this you know, famous baseball player back in the 1920s? And the son says, yeah. And he says, you know, I had all that, that stuff, you know, all that baseball stuff fine, uh, signed by all those famous players, you know, the bats and balls and gloves and, and jerseys and stuff that he had given to your grandfather and then your grandfather had given to me. And the son says, yeah. And the dad says, well, I, I sold all that stuff to, to pay. And the son says, dad, that was your, your favorite stuff in the world. You know, you, you love that stuff. I've never seen you like anything the way you like that stuff. And the dad says, yeah, I know. And so the son just feels sick. He just, he can't believe this. And it's then when the dad says, son, by the way, I just want you to know that everything I showed you a couple months ago, all that stuff that I told you I was going to give you and you stole, I'm still going to give you that stuff someday. And I wish you would have trusted me the first time because it could have saved us both a lot of pain and a lot of heartache, 
but I'm not going to let your pride, I'm not going to let your selfishness get in the way of the good things that I have planned for you. I just want you to know that. That's what it's really like. And it's, it's, you know, a thousand times. I mean, it's not baseball cards and, you know, signed memorabilia. It's the, the very life of the Son of God. And it proves that Satan was lying. It proves that God would never withhold anything from us, that he would give us any good thing, even his own life, to protect this future that he has planned for us. And that's why it's called Good Friday. Because it demonstrates, like nothing else could, that God is good, that he's a good father, that he's a father who gives his best to his children, which is why you keep the crucifix up there at the front of the sanctuary, so that you look upon it and remember and never doubt again. Let's pray. God, we are sorry that we didn't trust you. We are sorry for the times that we've looked at your rules or your timeline and said, that's not good enough for me. I'm going to do it my own way. And every time we do that, it ends up worse for us. And yet, somehow when the chance comes around to do it again, we, we do it again. God, this lie of the serpent that you're withholding from us, that we can't trust you with our happiness, this lie has sunk deep into our hearts. So we ask this morning that by the power of your spirit, you would uproot it. That by seeing Christ on the cross, by seeing the fact that there's nothing you would withhold from us, we would begin to trust you again. That we would leave behind autonomy and gladly assume this sense of dependence on you. A father who can be trusted, a father who is good. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.